Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Pastor Scott Richards. This guy. Ready to answer Bible questions, I presume. That is what we're here to do. Yes, so if you'd like to send them to us, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions are plural, forhope at gmail.com. Feel free to leave that in your... I guess, uh, lists of contacts, and whenever a Bible question comes along your mind or in your life, we will be happy to receive it there. And note that if we don't have time to address your question on an immediate broadcast, email it to us, and that way we can keep it organized. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can engage with us face-to-face from 4 to 5 p.m. Arizona time on YouTube at A Reason for Hope. If you subscribe to us there, you'll be notified when we are going live. But note, if you are listening to us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, you actually get the benefit of a two-for-one because they're still hearing this five to six. Yes. Not sure about the implications of that, but it's a fact. If you'd also want the same benefits you would get from YouTube, Facebook is also available. We'll use it while we can at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And then, of course, if you follow us there, you'll have the same benefits of our YouTube page. There'll be, during the live stream, a comment section on the right-hand side of the screen that we'll be watching live for your questions, or perhaps if you want to send it anonymously or separate from the main chat room, you can leave a comment, or, of course, send it to our private inbox. We'll be happy to receive your questions there. And also note on YouTube and Facebook, you can watch our Bible studies every Wednesday and Sunday, where we are presently going through the book of Esther and Acts. It'll be a good time. Say you want to circumvent social media altogether, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. Kind of gave it away in the title of the Facebook page. But if you join us there, click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen. You'll be sent to from 4 to 5 p.m., Arizona time every single weekday, an opportunity to engage with us. The chat box will be on the right-hand side of the screen. You can leave your questions there, and we will be watching for them. And note as well, if you want to know where that fits in your respective time zone, we have a countdown clock that is noting when that will be at the next time when you are viewing it. So we're looking forward to engaging with you on, of course, sincere Bible questions, meaning that you want to hear the answer. The answer and the question, both in their substance and product, involve the Bible, and that it's asked in the form of a question. But before we get into all of that and going through our little spiel here, we also have a prophecy update for you to keep your eyes up in an informed rather than a fatalistic way, but also want to make sure that we're dedicating this time to the Lord. So why don't we uh, align our hearts with His? Yes. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity to invite your presence here with us today. And Lord, we pray that your truth spoken in love on this broadcast would change the hearts of people. Thank you, Lord, that we can put our lives in your hands. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you uh, and your word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path in these increasingly challenging times, uh, both globally and personally. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you are far more interested in guiding us than we are being uh, guided. And Lord, we do pray that you would, uh, through even this broadcast today, not only increase our understanding of your word, show us how we can apply it to the challenges of life, but give us that comfort beyond all comfort of knowing that you are fulfilling your uh, plan 
uh, and uh, that the return of Jesus is even nearer now than when we first believed. Thank you for this opportunity to seek you uh, during this time. Meet us here and uh, help us to uh, walk away with the fruit of your spirit, uh, more abundant in our life than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen. That's true. All right, so what's going on? Well, boy, what isn't going on? Uh, Some uh, very interesting details uh, breaking today, uh, beginning with uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, answering uh, a question that has been on the hearts and minds of an awful lot of people. What is uh, the day after the Gaza war going to look like? What is the end game, if you will, to use the uh, Marvel Comics universe uh, traditional line? Uh, well, there were people that were saying, well, you know, again, Israel's reacting uh, to the October 7th massacres, but they really have no follow through plan about what Gaza is going to look like beyond all of this. And because of that, the whole thing is going to end up uh, worse off than at the beginning. Well, uh, cooler heads have prevailed, and uh, there is now a uh, not only well thought through, but publicly announced uh, presentation of uh, what is going to happen in Gaza the day after the war. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, made a public declaration that uh, in the immediate time frame, uh, the IDF is going to continue the war until its goals are achieved. That is the destruction of the military capabilities and governmental infrastructure of Hamas and Islamic Jihad, uh, the return of the hostages, and the prevention of a threat from the Gaza Strip over time. In other words, Gaza is going to be fully and completely out of the terrorism business uh, in order for Israel to say that their their, uh, uh, war uh, effort has actually come to an end. That's the immediate thing that is going to be true in Gaza. Then there's going to be an interim period, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu described. Uh, On the security level, uh, Israel will maintain operational freedom of action in the entire Gaza Strip without a time limit uh, for the purpose of preventing the renewal of terrorism and thwarting terror threats from Gaza. A security zone will be established in the Gaza Strip in the territory bordering Israel and will exist as long as there is a need for it. Israel will maintain a southern closure on the Gaza-Egypt border in order to prevent the re-intensification of terrorist elements in the Strip. Uh, The southern fence will will operate as far as possible in uh, cooperation with Egypt and with the assistance of the U.S. and be based on measures to prevent smuggling from Egypt Uh, both underground and above ground, including at the Rafah crossing. Israel will have security control over the entire area west of Jordan, including the envelope of Gaza, to prevent the strengthening of terrorist elements in the Palestinian territories in Gaza Strip and thwart uh, threats against Israel. There will be a complete demilitarization in the Gaza Strip of any military capacity beyond what is required for the needs of maintaining public order. In other words, uh, a uh, carefully vetted uh, Gaza police force locally will be allowed to carry weapons, but that's about it. Uh, The responsibility for realizing this goal and overseeing its existence in the foreseeable future is given to Israel. Now, this is really significant in that this has implications for the West Bank as well. What it's saying is is that Israel's current uh, arrangement with the Palestinian Authority, where the Palestinian Authority provides policing uh, in their uh, territories, 
But Israel is responsible for the overall security, will be extended across the board, including the Gaza Strip. And uh, very interestingly, uh, this detail on the civil level, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, as much as possible, the civil administration responsibility for public order in the Gaza Strip will be based on local officials with administrative experience. These local entities will not be identified with countries or entities, catch this, that support terrorism and will not receive payment from them. A comprehensive de-radicalization program will be promoted in all religious, educational, and welfare institutions in the Gaza Strip as much as possible with the involvement and assistance of Arab countries that have experience in promoting de-radicalization in their territory. Israel will work to shut down the United Nations Refugee Workers, Works Agency, whose operatives were involved in the October 7th massacre and whose schools taught terrorism and the destruction of Israel. Israel will work to end the UNRA activities in the Gaza Strip and replace them with responsible international ad agencies. Ouch. That is a uh, hearty rebuke to the United Nations and the UNRWA. Um, the uh, restoration of the Strip will only be possible after the demobilization is completed and the de-radicalization process begins. The rehabilitation programs will be financed and led by countries acceptable to Israel. Now, do you understand what is being portrayed here and what a slap in the face this is? to the terrorists in Hamas. Essentially what it is saying is, is that um, there's no longer going to be allowed uh, curriculum in schools or broadcast over media, uh, anything that would educate children on the idea that uh, destroying Israel is their highest and best purpose in life. In other words, um, one of the key tenets of Islam is going to be uh, strictly forbidden under these circumstances. Also, the individuals that are going to be placed into administrative uh, positions, catch this, can have no ties with countries or entities that support terrorism or and will not receive payment from them. What does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that the Palestinian Authority, which is run by the Fatah branch of uh, the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, which uh, includes a policy called pay for slay, where the Palestinian Authority supplies a uh, lifetime pension for any uh, relatives of anyone that is imprisoned or is slain in the act of committing uh, terrorism against an Israeli target. Uh, basically, what this says is that nobody in Gaza will be allowed in an administrative position that has any contact whatsoever with the current Palestinian Authority, because this is their policy. A pretty interesting development there. Uh, finally, in the long term, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu said, Israel re outright rejects international dictates regarding a permanent settlement with the Palestinians. Such an arrangement will be reached only through direct negotiations between the parties without preconditions. In other words, if... Um, Hamas or Fatah or Hezbollah want to negotiate with Israel, uh, but they say, well, but first you've got to release all our prisoners. Or first you have to guarantee us that someday we're going to have our own uh, Palestinian state. Israel says, nope, non-starter, not going to happen. So 
uh, very important development there. Israel will continue to oppose the unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. Such recognition in the wake of the October 7th massacre would give a huge reward to unprecedented terrorism and prevent any future peace settlement. So uh, a lot of different analyses about this statement that Benjamin Netanyahu has made. We need to also state that uh, the Israeli government has dispatched a uh, group of negotiators to meet with a number of national entities in Paris, France, uh, with the idea of coming up with some proposal that would allow the 134, at last count, hostages held by Hamas in Gaza uh, to be released. Uh, This group has been given uh, latitude to be able to uh, entertain proposals along this line. Uh, The only difference between the way this is operating now and the way it's operated in the past is uh, essentially instead of just giving a cold death stare to those who suggest any kind of um, interaction along this line, uh, the Israeli delegation will say, well, tell us what you have to say. That's about it. Uh, So uh, there are those who say that this is a rebuke to the Biden administration, who has uh, kind of been talking out of both sides of its mouth regarding the idea of a Palestinian state. If you follow uh, our uh, our, uh, postings on uh, the X platform, uh, we talked about a very interesting uh, congressional hearing uh, that took place where the head honcho uh, in charge of uh, arms control for the State Department or the Biden administration was grilled by a member of Congress asking specifically, do you or do you not support the presence of a Palestinian state, which they said, yes, we support the uh, implementation of a Palestinian state. Uh, They were then challenged to say who is going to run this Palestinian state. Is it going to be Hamas, Islamic Jihad? Is it going to be uh, Fatah? Who is it going to be? And they said, well, you know, that's that's not something that we've really uh, finalized a uh, opinion. I can't really say. Uh, It was probably one of the most embarrassing uh, pictures of uh, an individual uh, being raked over the coals in a congressional hearing that I think I've seen in a long time. Look it up on our X platform. We have a link to that particular interchange that took place. Well, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu pretty much uh, rendered all that discussion moot by saying Israel does not support a Palestinian state. Giving a Palestinian state after the events of October 7th is rewarding the most barbaric and horrible and cruel forms of terrorism uh, ever conceived. Uh, By the way, our good friend Amir Serfati on his uh, excellent uh, Telegram uh, update uh, uh, on uh, all events in Israel uh, shows that uh, the overwhelming majority of Palestinians express strong support for Hamas. Uh, Over 84% of respondents, according to the Palestinian Research Institute, AWRAD, uh, revealed 84% of the respondents in the West Bank strongly endorsed the massacres and atrocities of October 7th. So you're going to give the Palestinians a state. Um, Which Palestinians? Uh, the only thing that I would say about uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's statement about finding individuals that uh, could uh, step up and uh, be honest brokers and administrators in the Gaza Strip is where are you going to find these individuals that, uh, in essence, um, don't have these same feelings uh, about Israel and about what happened 
on uh, October 7th. It's going to be very difficult uh, to find indeed. Another interesting uh, detail in all of this, uh, our own President Biden has been pressing Israel to reach a deal with Hamas before the start of Ramadan. Apparently, they are worried about an increase in riots and demonstration during Ramadan. Sean, as uh, our go-to on all things uh, Islamic, what in the world is Ramadan, and why would it be so important to reach a peace agreement before Ramadan begins? Well, just as a brief overview, as far as when it takes place, it's the ninth month of the Muslim calendar. The significance of it, according to Muslim tradition, and not, is that that was the time in which Allah sent down the Quran from heaven on gold tablets for Muhammad to recite from his memory. The interesting thing about that is that it's kind of gone back and forth as far as the Islamic sources go as to why these particular months, because according to Sahih al-Bukhari, which actually tells you more about Islam than the Quran, uh, it was noted that the Quraysh tribe, which is a tribe of Jews in Yathrib that's called Medina today, celebrated a fasting day on the day of Ashura. And that was in, of course, recognition of a historical pagan deity. And ironically enough, according to Sayyid Bukhari 4504, he observed that pagan fast day too. But then it notes in the Hadith narrative, and I have it in front of me here, that when the order of compulsory fasting Uh, came in, Ramadan was revealed. Fasting in Ramadan became an obligation, and fasting on Asher was given up, but it was voluntary. So when it comes to what you do on Ramadan, like anything else in Islam, Muhammad decided that that's just what we're going to do, because Allah says so. Now, when this is to be celebrated, the term fasting is already very, very mishandled as far as not only the dictionary but also in how it's compared to Christian and Jewish circles or any other religion for that matter because according to the customs of Ramadan you are supposed to abstain from all food water and marital relations from sunrise to sunset during this prescribed month period now you know some of the areas of the world that Muslims tend to congregate abstaining from water for daylight hours is not a pleasant one, especially when Ramadan ends up in summer months, which happens sometimes. That's, of course, not healthy, but the unhealthiness doesn't stop there. When they're abstaining from this food, water, and interactions with their spouses, they are also given the opportunity when the sun goes down, and they have ways of measuring it, you know, all the white and the black thread when you can't distinguish, then it's time for the feasts of Ramadan. And since you're going to be going through the entire day, depending on where you are in the world, that's going to be either a trudge or a risk to life and limb, depending on the weather, it ultimately uh, encourages them to eat as many heavy foods and in as much quantities as possible when they now have the excuse to. So modern uh, health assessments note that during Ramadan there's a higher proclivity towards obesity and diabetes diagnoses because of this engorging of all of these unhealthy foods at incredibly high and frequent weights throughout this month. So ironically enough, during the fast of Ramadan, they're feasting more than any other religion on the planet. So note that as an interesting point. 
What's also interesting about Ramadan is that during this time, they are either sleeping through the day and then partying throughout the night, but also encouraged due to the time they're celebrating at the revelation of the Quran to actually start taking their religion more seriously than the other times throughout the year. And any objective reading of the Quran notes some very unpleasant calls to not only dehumanize, but exterminate, subjugate, or any other combination thereof towards Jews, Christians, and non-Muslims. Now, when we, uh, and this is again somewhat morbid and tongue-in-cheek, but I think also necessary due to the fact that satire gets through to people in ways that just plain history won't, uh, there's a record going on called the Ramadan Bombathon, where during <laughs> the month of Ramadan, the sites that do the jobs that news agencies aren't willing to, lest they get targeted by Muslims, ironically, is to keep a track of the attacks that are perpetrated by Muslims around the globe during Ramadan, and you notice a significant spike. Now, you correlate that with the idea they start taking their religion more seriously, they start reading the Quran more objectively, they get together with their communities and are surrounded by old Uncle Ahmed, who knows how they did it back in the day, and suddenly terrorism shoots. Eh, I won't uh, read too much into that, but here's the point. Ramadan is a time and a season where Muslims are given an excuse to invest themselves more in their religion. And ironically enough, it parallels with the month of Passover and the celebration of Easter this year. So we have an open door and opportunity. Uh, people ask sometimes if it's wrong for them if they have a Muslim friend and they're invited to one of the sundown feast sessions. Again, it's not a healthy practice, but it could be an open door for ministry because a lot of Muslims are going to be eating a lot of food, and I'll give this much uh, credit to the Muslim families. They know how to cook. But the point being made is that it's a fast that is actually a feast where they're supposed to be abstaining from all forms of food and water uh, for the sake of focusing on Islam. It ends up doing more harm than good, not just biologically, but socially, spiritually, and intellectually, because they're investing themselves and this time of fasting into the ravings of a illiterate 7th century pedophile warlord and rapist. So when it comes down to its impact, again, it's not healthy for Muslims, but it is an opportunity to challenge them on those points. And the reason why terrorism tends to spike is because they are reading their Qurans more seriously at this time than others, because that's what it's celebrating. So uh, the reason that, uh, say, our State Department is uh, pushing uh, Israel to resolve these things before Ramadan is because terrorism is going to be more likely during that time. And they're going to be hangry. Yeah. They better get them a Snickers bar, as, as they say. Well, they can't. Otherwise, they'd be beaten. Yeah. So, But they can have it at night. Yeah, they have to wait. Yeah. So... Uh, kind of a, a sort of an interesting iteration of, I guess what we would call intermittent fasting going on there, for lack of a better term. A couple other things uh, we wanted to uh, let you know about. Uh, again, uh, the United States is pushing Israel to resolve these things, but uh, Netanyahu's statements definitely seems to be a uh, pushback. Uh, but uh, wait, there's more, uh, believe it or not, uh, our friend, uh, the Chinese spy balloon is back. Apparently spotted earlier today over Colorado, exact same model, exact same uh, MO, uh, whether our current administration is going to allow this spy balloon to continue to drift over sensitive U.S. military sites, including nuclear sites, NORAD, etc., like the last one, 
uh, only to shoot it down once it accomplishes its mission somewhere off the coast of North Carolina uh, remains to be seen. But we wanted to let you guys know about that. Uh, also, uh, we uh, had a number of questions uh, before airtime uh, wondering about the uh, shutdown of the Internet, uh, the uh, X6, I guess specifically level uh, solar flare, and whether that's prophetically significant. Uh, not directly prophetically significant, but uh, it's very interesting to see how, uh, I guess, the words of uh, the famous musical Annie, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow, uh, we were told during the tribulation period there's going to come a time where that just ain't so. So uh, if the sun has risen and you're enjoying its warmth today, uh, take advantage because that's subject to change without notice. Very interesting how uh, the change in the sun, uh, the change in uh, the heavens and so forth, the powers of the heavens being shaken uh, as we see, uh, is something that is predicted by Jesus as being a part of all of this. Is this uh, something that could involve, uh, like the Carrington event in the uh, 1800s, a solar flare on such a magnitude that uh, basically our electronic infrastructure, satellites all the way down to the Internet, everything in between gets fried? Uh, quite possible. Uh, one of the things that uh, we need to understand is that God is the one who provides us with everything, and one of the things that is very interesting about taking a look at the tribulation period is that it is almost a systematic uh, reversal, if you will, of the days of creation that we see in the book of Genesis. God says to mankind, finally, all right, you don't want to have a relationship with me, your creator, told me to go peddle my papers. Well, systematically and in increasingly practical ways, that's exactly what you're going to see. Every good and perfect gift we are told, comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. A uh, very interesting way of looking at current events and biblical prophecy in general is God systematically, incrementally taking away his blessings with the motivation of letting people see what they've lost and how desperately they need to turn to him. A note as well, in case a Carrington event does happen before that point, we're emphasizing this. It's not a prophecy. It is something that could likely set up or take place during that time. Right. But if you're tempted to at that time when all the power goes off and we resort back to our baser instincts and primeval societies, uh, maybe resort to feudalism or something, I don't know, and you say, why did God let this happen? He didn't promise it wouldn't. Things go wrong in a fallen world. Yeah. But we need to note that as well. One last uh, interesting thing, speaking of newspapers, newspaper eschatology, and our need for being very careful about what news sources we look to for uh, our takes on things that are happening, particularly in regards to Israel. The Associated Press, full disclosure, when I worked in uh, radio and television news, I was uh, given an award by the Associated Press for a contributor of the month for a few months uh, running. Uh, while we were doing all of that, I've had uh, uh, very warm feelings about the AP as a result of all that. Not anymore. Uh, the AP is being sued uh, by a, uh, a number of victims of uh, the October 7th terrorist attack uh, and their families uh, because the Associated Press used a Hamas operative, a terrorist, to get them photographs of the event as it was taking place in real time. Again, a, an individual uh, by the name of Hassan Essiaya, a freelance photographer, has deep, long-standing ties 
to the terrorist group uh, is being sued by the National Jewish Advocacy Center. Uh, the AP was warned five years ago about Eslalaya's terrorist affiliations, but they continue to use him uh, as a uh, paid employee. They paid him for these real-time images, including images of Israeli hostages being taken into Gaza, uh, despite being warned well in advance that at least one of the so-called journalists they were paying was, in fact, a Hamas terrorist. So if you hear something about, oh, uh, the IDF has uh, uh, killed some journalists in Gaza, well, these are the kind of journalists that end up getting killed in Gaza, the same ones that uh, put on a press pass while they're taking pictures, take it off, and then shoot at IDF soldiers in Gaza. It's like complaining that the Allies motivated the suicide of a poor painter who was a World War One veteran. That was Hitler, dude. Yeah, exactly. So just wanted to keep you up to date on all of these things. Other things. <laughs> so, uh, real quick before we get into the Bible questions, uh, someone wanted to know, if uh, the rodeo celebration is pagan. No, uh, for those who aren't local Tucsonians, the rodeo weekend, as we call it, is just a gathering and celebration of the athletic events usually associated with something that was a very common form of commerce and trade in this area of the United States that is raising cattle ranches. And the most uh, significant portion of it, in my opinion, is the fact that EG's, also an Arizona staple, has a root beer uh, as far as what actually is happening, we take some days off of school to the uh, chagrin of everyone else in the country. We uh, have a hosting celebration of uh, people who do athletic feats involving cattle ranch-esque pades yeah. and so forth, but it is no more pagan than it would be if uh, you were doing a monster truck rally. It's uh, just a local thing. Yeah. So going out to our Bible questions now. Got some sent along to us. Uh, first of all, and very interestingly, uh, what is Scientology and why should we believe it is false? Well, um, as we were discussing before airtime, uh, what is the origin of Scientology? Its founder, L. Ron Hubbard, was a science fiction writer, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he got into an interesting conversation with a fellow science fiction writer. On a bet, he told him, I bet I can invent a religion using my creative prowess in writing and make money off of it. That's it. So if the foundations of your religion are based on whether or not you could make money off of people on a bet, obviously he wasn't given some special revelation. This was all coming from his mind. However, why we would still take Scientology seriously and why people from, you know, uh, well-known influencers like Tom Cruise, John Travolta, and others are affiliated with this religious group and others even that would give it the time of day given the fact this is publicly accessible information isn't because they're stupid. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of publicly uh, available information, uh, the LA Times uh, reported that the financial policy of L. Ron Hubbard's organization was, in Hubbard's own words, quote, make money make more money, make others produce so as to make money. So that's basically what we're dealing with here. Uh, in, in essence, what does Scientology teach? It teaches that man is an immortal being called a Thetan, uh, not originally from this planet, that man is trapped in matter, energy, space, and time, something Scientologists call MEST, 
Uh, salvation for a Scientologist comes through a process called auditing, where engrams, uh, memories of past pain and unconsciousness that create energy blockage, are removed. Auditing is a lengthy process and can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. When all the engrams are finally removed, the Thetan can once again control matter, energy, space, and time instead of being controlled by it. Uh, until this happens, each Thetan is constantly reincarnated. So that's, in essence, what's going on here. Uh, Scientologists teach that one of the reasons that this world is so messed up is that a galactic warlord by the name of Xenu uh, was sent here as a disembodied spirit as punishment for his various misadventures in the galaxy. And uh, he and his uh, uh, spirit uh, followers... Uh, are the ones responsible for these engrams. So you got to get rid of these hitchhiking uh, followers of Xenu in order to achieve what's called clear. Now, if you achieve clear, you become enlightened. Uh, you can be a ma master of, uh, ma of uh, matter, space, ma matter energy, space, and time. Uh, you can also discover the ultimate truth of Scientology, which is that L. Ron Hubbard this kind of goofy-looking guy who was given to wearing ascots, is God. That's the ultimate payoff for all of this. Why is Scientology so popular? Uh, it's because it is a master at public relations, uh, pulling in celebrities uh, to be spokesmen. Tom Cruise, one of the most famous examples of this, John Travolta, others, uh, Leah Riemanni, who uh, used to be a celebrity spokesperson for Scientology, left the group and uh, has caused Scientology a lot of consternation by having a very popular documentary uh, series talking about the damage that Scientology ends up uh, doing. Theologically, uh, Scientology categorically denies the existence of the God of the Bible, uh, heaven, hell. Uh, to a Scientologist, Jesus was a good teacher, who unfortunately was wrongfully put to death. Uh, again, uh, Scientology differs from Christianity on almost every important uh, doctrine. Uh, as far as God is concerned, Scientology teaches there are multiple gods and some gods are above other gods. Uh, Jesus uh, denies the deity of Jesus and uh, again, uh, say he was a lesser god who achieved legendary status over the years. Uh, Scientology believes in the inherent goodness of man and teaches that it is despicable and underneath beneath contempt to tell man he must repent or that he is evil. Uh, as far as salvation goes, Scientology, as we mentioned, believes in reincarnation and that personal salvation in one's lifetime uh, from the freedom of cycle of birth and death uh, is possible if you go through their auditing process and achieve the state of clear. Uh, so when you take a look at the teachings of Scientology in the Bible, never the twain shall meet. It could not be more directly in opposition. But the key aspect in this is, as what was being said, the reason people believe in this isn't because they're easily duped or foolish or stupid. The mindset behind the average Scientologist is a perspective on religion that is actually the real issue right because when you're dealing with the modern skeptic not necessarily the atheist but just someone who's agnostic who's not interested in those things it's because when you use the term religion 
all that translates to in their mind is this is my community, this is a set of beliefs or values that I hold as a result of that community, this is just something that I do to better quote unquote myself, to define what better means, and it's just something that I generally like. As far as it having any grounding in reality or history, they would not care because the whole purpose is just what you do with your time, and in this case money, and lots of it, instead of whether or not you're answering real questions about history, theology, and everything else in between. So the mindset of the Scientologist is what needs to be challenged, not necessarily their claims, because most wouldn't even care to read the documents. This is just something that they do. Now, if you're talking to a Scientologist and you're challenging the idea, it all needs to center around that. What is religion? and you get them to commit to an answer on that, your opportunity then, and how you can share the gospel with them, is to say, well, it's an interesting perspective, whatever they happen to say. Listen to them and note at points of application in your own study in the Bible, but make sure that you point out a contrast in saying, my view of religion is quite different. I don't think about these things as just affecting me in the here and now and what I do with my time, but the fact that I'm investing my time in something greater, I have a certainty of it because of what Jesus did in history. Now, you can, if they say, well, I have more reason to believe that L. Ron Hubbard is telling the truth than your made-up, you know, band of bishops at the Council of Nicaea or whatever, you can say, L. Ron Hubbard invented that religion on a bet. Do you want to see the sources? And then hopefully it can be more productive. But if that's not enough to convince them, okay, you have a good reason not to believe your version of religion is true, but I still hold to the belief that you're only a Christian because that's just what you do with your time and money. Again, that's what needs to be challenged. And if you can drive home the point that the historical death and resurrection of Jesus is what gives you reason to believe what Christianity is claiming, then you've put a line not just between Scientology and Christianity, but your dictionaries and how you define religion. And the more that you give them the opportunity, the more the Spirit equips you to fulfill Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, noting that's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Make sure that they know that this isn't just something that we do as a hobby or something that we do because we have nothing else better to do with our time and attention, but because God has revealed himself in history and the basis of that, living in light of that, is what we would call religion. Now, if you want to get in the technicals, I don't like religion, I just want a relationship— point neither here nor there. But when you're talking to somebody, it's it's very, very important to note assumptions because you can be talking past each other and not even understand there's a different language being spoken, even with the same words. So note that point when you're sharing with the Scientologist. Do it in love and make sure that as they understand the deeper issues behind trusting a man with your future, even your present time, over a bet— that he could make money is not only reflecting some aura of manipulation in your eyes, but understand as well why we would view it that way and the difference that they would take to it because they wouldn't mind any more than someone who's spending their time watching Star Wars versus Star Trek. There is a difference. Right. So that's what needs to be clarified for the Scientologist. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, again, if you, you know, without uh, getting in all the nuance and discussions of, uh, say, uh, auditing and uh, they have uh, what they call an e-meter that's supposed to measure your engrams uh, that 
you're supposed to get hooked up to and so on. Uh, one of the, the, I think the essential things you can get into, and, and this was really helpful to me when I debated a witch at the University of New Mexico, was we focused in on the difference between reincarnation and resurrection. Because ultimately, when we talk about reincarnation, it's been westernized so that we tend to think of it as a positive sort of a thing, to go back and visit past lives. Everyone who has this kind of regressive therapy, uh, and for the most cases, will say, oh, you know, I was a beautiful uh, Indian princess, or uh, I was a mighty warrior uh, fighting uh, for Babylon when I fell, and, and you know, all these uh, majestic and noble things. Uh, that's a very Western way of looking at reincarnation, not an Eastern way. Uh, in, in, Hin in Hinduism, you do not want to be reincarnated. As a matter of fact, Gandhi himself said that reincarnation was too great of a burden to bear because if you get something wrong in this life, say you wrong somebody in this life, the law of karma dictates that you have to be reincarnated so someone does the exact same thing to you in the next life so that your karma will be balanced out. Well, all well and good, but what if you do something else uh, intentionally or unintentionally to someone that is wrong in that? Well, it goes on and on and on and on. And the, understand as well what you're being punished for, evil in the Hindu mindset and later in Buddhist as well, isn't the idea of causing harm like a Wiccan would propose, or isn't even necessarily uh, violating a, the nature of a god. The idea of evil is doing anything out of attachment, which then essentially condemns all of us in every possible way to care about something in even the smallest of ways. That's what keeps you in this hell called reality. Yeah, so when people talk about reincarnation, not a good thing. Uh, the goal of, uh, of reincarnation in Hinduism is to achieve a state called samsara, where you are released from the endless cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. Uh, you know, again, George Harrison in his uh, famous song, uh, uh, Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth, uh, had as this, keep me free from birth is one of the lines. Now, George Harrison was a devout follower of Krishna. And so the idea of keep me free from birth is the idea of I don't want to come back again. I don't want to experience this endless cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. And so when I was talking to the, uh, the Wiccan at New Mexico, uh, you know, I said, well, ultimately, uh, you know, you're never going to get to a place where you're going to be free from that. Uh, there, there's, there's no hope in reincarnation. It's not something where you're getting better. It's something where you're forced to face the things uh, that have made you worse. I said, resurrection, on the other hand, uh, is something that gives us hope. Why? Because first of all, our hope of resurrection is based upon a historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. So rather than having to get our act together, uh, which is impossible no matter how many lifetimes you throw at it, uh, the Bible offers this alternative. The only one who lived a perfect life, Jesus, willingly laid down that perfect life to pay this for the sins that we commit so that we could be reconciled to God and therefore brought into an eternal relationship with him where sin is not going to be a problem for us anymore. One point of view solves the problem. The other point of view condemns you to live with the problem forever. Which do you want to choose? 
and even then the terminology is very westernized too because in reincarnation the idea of the enduring self the atman is something that cult groups are actually founded off of depending on what part of it they acknowledge in uh, hindu circles and this is important to understand because in western perspectives they assume its existence the idea of your consciousness, your being, your person, not necessarily your memories, but you as an entity are in fact what is going to come back in that reincarnated state. That's transmigration, not reincarnation. The right. idea of reincarnation is that you were once something. Now the existence that is separate from the whole has to exist again as something else. The idea of a human being coming back as another human being is so astronomically unlikely according to hindu theology that it would be the same likelihood as a molecule ceasing to exist and becoming that exact same molecule given the infinite number of possibilities across the universe yeah the mindset is flawed and it's based off of not what Hindus themselves believe, but what they would like to be true, that this life isn't the one they have to answer for because they know they have a lot to deal with. That's the idea that you need to hold people to account over, saying, well, you say reincarnation as if that's an answer to life's issues. Do you know about the Bhagavad Gita? Have you read any Hindu sources like the Ramayana, for instance, and the examples that are actually given when Lord Krishna appeared to Arunja and explained to him what morality was really all about and the ugly picture that that implies for human nature? Every single one I've talked to anyway has said no. They didn't know what they were talking about. So make sure that, A, you know the dictionary, same is true for Scientologists, but now for Hindus too. Yeah. And keep that in mind as well. Um, here's a question from our good friend Coyote. He wasn't able to hear this when we answered it, but it was several months ago, so why not revisit it? Um, the question's regarding Luke 17:37, and the statement, where the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. It definitely has... Uh, drawn a lot of attention from commentators, and as our good friend Levi Lusko says, some taters are more common than others. But uh, what would be our perspective on the significance of this? Why is it so loosely defined and interpreted, and what do you think, I guess, would lead to the most sound biblical conclusion? Yeah, uh, the, uh, the reason that this becomes controversial is because uh, leading into this statement is the statement uh, that Jesus makes. Uh, and it says, in that day, he was on the housetop and, uh, on the housetop, uh, and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, uh, the one who is in the field, let him not come back. Uh, remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you in that night, there will be two men on one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. And they said, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. That's very clear. The context of this is Jesus' warning, which is also repeated in Matthew chapter 24, that when the abomination that causes desolation is set up in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation period, the abomination that causes desolation is the image of the Antichrist, the Antichrist going into a rebuilt temple, sitting there declaring himself God to be worshipped. Jesus' advice to the Jewish people is flee 
Don't go back for anything, even in your house. Get out of Dodge. Get out of Jerusalem. Why? Because in passages like Zechariah chapter 12, we are told that two-thirds of the Jewish people are going to be wiped out by the Antichrist during this particular time. The Antichrist is going to put on a Holocaust program. It's going to make Hitler blush in comparison. So the message is very, very clear in both passages regarding this situation. Leave and leave quickly. Why? Because a massacre is going to ensue. Hence the statement where the eagles are, where the body is there, the eagles will gather together. In other words, where you have this kind of massacre going on, carrying birds are going to be seen in that vicinity. Now, where this gets controversial is Jesus talks about uh, in that day, uh, you know, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. Two people will be in one bed, one will be taken, and one will be left. In other words, uh, there's going to be people that are going to be taken up in this awful uh, uh, massacre that uh, Jesus predicts here. Some will get away and some won't. That definitely seems to be the context of what's going on in Luke chapter 17. Now, where it gets controversial is this. Uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36, this is the Olivet Discourse, which is a different conversation than the one recorded in Luke chapter 17. It says this, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the son of man be. Then when the coming of the son of man, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other left Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other left watch. Therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Uh, again, he goes on uh, and says that the Son of Man's coming in an hour that you don't expect. The picture here of one person being in the field, one taken, the other left, two women grinding, one taken, the other left, talks about the suddenness that is going to happen when Jesus comes for his people. This is not the same incident being described in Luke chapter 17. Uh, what we're seeing here is the rapture of the church, a deliverance that is going to happen prior to the tribulation period, what we see in Luke chapter 17. And Jesus does deal with the same situation and the same warning in Matthew 24. But in this section of Matthew 24, clearly the context is the sudden, unpredictable return, not of the Antichrist to the temple in Jerusalem, but Jesus Christ for his people. Jesus uses similar terminology in this to describe one person taken, another person left but it is not talking about the same incident, the same situation. So you can, in fact, use the same illustration right. to make two different points. Right. So, you know, once again, we see Luke 17 in its context. It's a different conversation than the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. as different content, answering different questions and so forth. Uh, we can see that a different subject is being spoken up there. Yeah, and it's using the same language that the Old Testament prophets used when describing God's judgment on Babylon and Edom, for example. It also is referenced in Revelation, referring to the aftermath of the Battle of Armageddon, telling the birds in advance, to, I hope you're hungry because there's going to be food. Right. On and on it goes. But the point of emphasis needs to be taken. It's not a universal law of first mentions here. What point is being made with the illustration, not the illustration makes the point. Right, exactly. Don't get that cart before the horse. 
All right. Yeah. Let us know if that helps you out, Coyote. And uh, again, hopefully it was as clear as the others who were blessed by it the first time. Here's another question from Talon, who wants to know the significance of 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22. Since it wasn't listed, we'll look it up for you. But I assume with the significance, we'll be reading more than just the lone verse, because the verses were put in later. First verse Timothy 22. 5.22. Yeah, the verse itself says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share any in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Now, this is the... I guess, three-quarters of the way mark of a conversation that started at verse 17. Let me read the first couple verses so we understand the flow of this, and then it might uh, answer itself. Let the elders who rule well. So what's the subject of this? Church leadership. Church leadership, yeah. Be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. You're welcome. For the scripture says, and then he makes a quotation of Deuteronomy 25, do not uh, muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and, quoting Jesus, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder. So we've moved from a position of high honor to those who are teaching the word to then challenges to their reputation. Now, does it mean never condemn them? No, it says do not hear an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Quoting the Old Testament again. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest may also fear. Now again, who are the those that are being rebuked? Still church leadership, right? right? So it's still going on. It says, I charge you therefore before God, the Lord Jesus, and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Who's he speaking to here? Well, go to the first verse of the book, to my son Timothy who would also be in a position of leadership. He's telling him what he ought to be doing. Then it notes, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. So when it's talking about this situation, what's the conversation been about subject-wise? It's your job, Timothy, as a church leader. And as a church leader, sometimes you're going to have to call people to account, not just on what you're doing, but you'll also have to be on the receiving end of correction as well. Right. Now, to lay hands on somebody isn't to say, I'm blessing you with the anointing of the ministry. That is, in what, um, in other senses, right, the context of someone being the object of church discipline. But there's also senses, and the Apostle Paul uses this as well, with the laying on of my hands, that was calling someone to the position of ministry. Right. So in the context of accountability... It's making the same point that James chapter 3 starts with and saying, let not many of you become teachers, because in doing so you incur a stricter judgment. It's not saying, all right, we're going to lay hands on each other outside in like some sort of physical fight. It's not even necessarily in terms of church discipline or leadership and saying, we're going to take you out back and uh, put the fear of God into you, right? Yeah. No, the idea is in the context of church discipline, you're under accountability. So when you're appointing new people for leadership, make sure that you're careful and that the things that they'll be called out on will be fewer and far between. Yeah, and and this uh, is a further reiteration of a point Talon has made in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, where it says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Uh, in other words, uh, just because someone's talented, just because someone's attractive, just because someone, say, has a position or possessions or background, uh, background, 
uh, comes from a church that seemingly is right on, it doesn't mean that immediately we lay hands on them. We give them positions of spiritual responsibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that we often tell people here at our church, Talon, is that when people come here, oftentimes they're coming from somewhere else. They moved here to Tucson and uh, boy, you know, they really want to get involved because they were really involved in their previous church. Uh, One of the things that we'll tell them is, look, why don't you just spend a little bit of time here, just soak up the teaching, be in the word, enjoy the worship. And then uh, if you really feel like the Lord's calling you, put down roots here. After you've had a little while to get to know us and we've had a little while to get to know you, then let's talk about you serving someplace. Uh, And, you know, for some people, it's a breath of fresh air because uh, they think, you know, that the the church has just used them in the past. Maybe they've been treated pretty tough in positions of uh, service, uh, feel like they were road hard and put away wet, so to speak. And when we say, look, we just care about you. We just want to make sure that this is a good fit for you. Just hang out. Make sure this is really where God has you. And then, you know, we'll talk about it because during that six month period, you know, hey, we'll be the first one to admit that our church isn't for everybody. And people have to find that out over time. The other thing is this, by, uh, you know, having like that six month period of time, it's a good thing because you get to see people in a lot of different circumstances, a lot of different interactions with people. And, and you find out whether they're really supposed to be in a position of leadership or not. One thing I've discovered is this, it's an awful lot easier to put someone into a position of responsibility than it is to get them out. Uh, And so rather than rushing in these sort of things, uh, we don't want to rush. The spirit doesn't rush. The spirit doesn't push. He leads and guides. Patience is an element of biblical wisdom. So we just try to apply that there, Taylor. And that's what that scripture is about. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. God bless you. And we'll look forward to the next time we have the honor of sharing God's word with you. Pray for us. We'll continue to do the same. Until then, see you next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.